Let's throw that first slide up there that I think I put in there. The, well, the second slide maybe after that one. The, yeah, there you go. Thank you. So, uh, the third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Who knows what that's from? Well, no, but it's, it's the same wording, isn't it? It's the same that was written about that same time as far as the English part of it. But do you know that what? The Apostles' Creed. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, Christians have believed in Christ's second coming for a very long time. How about this one? Um, we believe in the personal uh, bodily and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of Christ at a time known only to God, demands constant expectancy, and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Um, class, where do you think that's from? I, I heard so. It's the, it's the free church's statement on the return of Christ, for those that might not, not know uh, that. But uh, yeah, very good, very good statements, both of them. One represents something very, very ancient. The, the free church statement was just reformulated not that long ago. So, uh, yeah, maybe a five-year-old statement right there. This that we're experiencing in this moment of the sermon is like that long-awaited, you know, fishing trip you take along a mountain stream. There's nobody else around. You're, you're standing there at the edge of the water. You got your morning coffee. It's just idyllic. You can smell trout as it's searing in the pan over there on the fire. That's Christian unity. If, you know, that all Christians across all denominations are unified in saying Christ is coming again. That was a metaphor, okay? The camping trip as a metaphor. Now, out of the brush, you hear a rustling. Suddenly, a 600-pound grizzly bear comes bearing down on you to tear you, you know, limb from limb. That's the metaphor of what the church has done with this question in in terms of the infighting, the, the controversy, the, you know, the back and forth over all the issues of, of Christ's time, you know, the timing of his return and questions of the rapture and how the rapture might relate to the last seven years, which is referred to uh, as the tribulation period, and so on and so on and so forth. So why would I dive into that? Like that's the third rail of uh, evangelical theology is talking about the timing of Christ's return. I have kind of, I've kind of used this book by Piper as fodder for my sermon series. I've not gone, uh, you know, point by point or word for word with anything he said here, but uh, it emboldened me to talk about this issue because he actually spends a couple chapters really uh, delving into this issue, and he gives his point of view, which is the correct one, because um, it agrees with my point of view. Um, I'm <laughs> yeah, I was I was a little surprised actually. I thought, wow, Piper and I are like right on the same page on this. Yeah, um, and, and I'm on his page probably is the better way of thinking about it. But for the last 35 years, I would say I've held to this view. And even some of the people he quotes in, in the book are people that I've read and appreciated. So yeah, it's, that made it kind of handy. And made, I guess it emboldened me to go ahead and talk about this today. Um, Jesus will return, that, that we all agree on. Jesus will return for every eye to see. Now on the face of it, does that sound controversial for me to say that? You're like, no, that doesn't sound controversial at all. But some of you that are really into end times and, and maybe you've, you, you take a certain tact, a certain view of that, you might be going, I think I know where you're going and I don't like it. 
Um, because this, this would not go along with things like your Left Behind series and the Schofield Bible and some of those kinds of dispensational viewpoints. And, and uh, I'm going to present this biblically the way I know how. And if you disagree, that's fine. You know, we don't have to agree on this. We can, we can sip our coffee along the stream together and fish for trout, and, uh, and it'll be great, right? Because we don't absolutely have to agree. But I'm going to give you my biblical persuasion here. First of all, a secret rapture of God's people is not scripturally obvious. That is my first point that I want to make. A secret rapture of God's people is not scripturally obvious. I'm convinced of that, that even if you take a different view on this subject, you would at least agree with me on this. I even know people who hold this view and write books about it who would at least agree at this point, at this stage. And when we're talking about that, uh, we're talking about the rapture of the church and whether or not that is a secret. That is the the sort of left-behind idea that you may have heard, maybe you hold to this, the so-called pre-tribulational rapture where Christ comes, he raptures his church, but he does it in such a way that nobody sees him except his church. We see him, of course, but the world doesn't see. They're just like, oh, there's planes falling out of the sky because the, you know, the Christian pilot at the controls suddenly was raptured and then the whole plane crashes and people are like, what happened? You know, it could have been that rapture thing. That, I think, is not actually scripturally obvious. Look at this uh, um, verse. Um, this is one that, that they take, they, those that hold to the idea of a pre-tribulational secret rapture, they would go to this verse as one of their key texts. And I just ask you, if you never had heard of the rapture, would you, would you think of what those who hold this view put out there? It, it, it doesn't force itself on you. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. And you go, well, yeah, that's the rapture. But I'm saying, if you'd never heard of the idea of the rapture um, and, and, and being a secret, would you think that that's what it's talking about? And there are other interpretations. I don't really even have time to go down the road of how, how else you would interpret it, but I know this is kind of in our mind, but if you just look at it on the face of it, this does not absolutely, provingly say that there will be this secret rapture of the church, one taken in the rapture. So you have to insert that idea there. Um, it, it's, it's not obvious. that Jesus has just explained what the coming of the Son of Man, it's when... Christ comes with the clouds and the trumpet and the angels and so forth. If we already could prove a secret rapture, then this verse would support it. You'd go, oh, well, that must be what that is. But if you can't prove it from other scripture, then it just kind of sits there, doesn't it? Um, another passage they will go to is this. One of, um, and to uh, wait on his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, here's what you have to understand. If you, if you hold to the secret rapture concept as it's put forth in kind of a dispensational view, you, then you have to, you have to uh, take this and stretch it a little bit. First, you have to assume that the seven years of the tribulation period are all wrath, right? So then you, so then you say, well, if God's going to save us from wrath and it's seven years long, then it would make sense that he would take us out or away or somewhere, but that's saying God can't save you from wrath when he's pouring wrath out onto his enemies, which isn't obvious. And we don't even have a verse that identifies the tribulation as wrath itself. 
There is wrath in the book of Revelation, but it doesn't necessarily correlate to the full seven years. Okay? You with me? Tracking? All right. For now, I just want... What I'm trying to demonstrate on this first point is very simple. And that is that there's no text that comes out and forcefully says Jesus will come back secretly, take the church, go back into heaven, wait seven years, and come back. There's, there's no verse of Scripture that says that. In fact, uh, uh, an author by the name of Walford, who writes a lot about end times, and he very much holds that view, I read in one of his books where he admits, he's like, I'm not saying there's a verse of Scripture that teaches this explicitly. He just, he, just, he just says that plainly. So it's not forced on you. That's my, that's my first point. It's just that scripturally it is not absolutely obvious. Secondly, a rapture of God's people is scripturally obvious but connected to his coming. Notice the word secret dropped out there. I do believe in the rapture. Absolutely. Because that's biblical. Um, a rapture of God's people is scripturally obvious but connected to his coming. So let me quickly um, but plainly explain what I mean here. Rapture is that term which is used. Um, it is from First Thessalonians where the church is caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And that, that, that verbiage in the Latin is where we get the word rapture from. Let me share three passages Uh, which are very easy to understand. And what you're going to see is that our being caught up into the air to be with the Lord is intricately connected to his coming, his one singular coming. Uh, There's the passage in Matthew 24, which is called the Olivet Discourse. In case I may mention that later, so if I refer to the Olivet Discourse, that's Matthew 24. And that's where Jesus gives his full teaching on how his coming will be. He says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the sun of, coming of the Son of Man. And the interesting thing is he's talked about people who say, well, oh, he's come, but he was over there. So you missed it. What does that sound like? To me, that sounds like a secret rapture. Yeah, he came, he took some people, but yeah, it was over there and you missed it. But what does Jesus say? Don't, don't listen to that. It's not going to be like that. It's going to be explicit. It's going to be so that every eye will see. Then he tells him um, of the signs of his uh, appearing, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, but he says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Oh, so, so this is his coming, right? And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, the simplest reading of that is that at his coming, he will be seen by all, that there will be very obvious heavenly signs, there will be trumpet blasts, there will be clouds, he will be coming with power and glory, and that is when he will gather his elect from the four winds. What does that sound like? I mean, it sure for all the words, world sounds like the rapture to me, especially if you, if you put it up against uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, a very popular verse. You'll see it in most church nurseries, right above the changing, tra- uh, the changing table. 
It's, yeah, have, have you not seen this stuck right above the changing table at, at a church nursery before? Absolutely. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. It's very funny. Ha ha. Um, but then it goes on. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. What do you mean we'll be changed? Well, we'll, we'll be, we will be glorified and taken up to meet the Lord in the air. And when is that going to happen? The last trumpet, which we saw in Matthew 24. There's the resurrection, the trumpet, there's the resurrection of the dead, there's the rapture of the saints being taken up to meet the Lord in the air. Doesn't that seem pretty clear? Like, I mean, it's, pretty, it's a pretty easy reading of the text. With, you don't have to do any gymnastics. Look at First uh, Thessalonians 4. By the way, we read this at just about every Christian um, burial service. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning dead, that you may gr- not grieve as those that have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left and here's where we get the word rapture from will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, do you see how the order of events is depicted in Matthew 24 and 1 Corinthians 15 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? You see these same elements. You you typically have uh, clouds, you have trumpet, you have angels you have the lord descending you have the dead in christ rising you have the elect the people of god being caught up to meet the lord in the air simple right the rapture happens when he comes it makes a ton of sense and i could go on would take a lot more sermons to do this i did preach through revelation once um won't ever do that again in my career, but, uh, but I did. I preached through the whole book of Revelation, and it's interesting that, that it is not hard whatsoever if you, if you go into it with this thought, and you read it that way plainly, and you're not looking ahead of time. I've got to make this fit the Left Behind series. How does this, the, don't eat, just divorce yourself from that novel series and just read it, and read it with this plain understanding. It's not hard. Second Thessalonians, uh, there, there's a passage in Second Thessalonians. One of my profs in seminary did believe in a secret rapture, but as he was teaching on 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he said, I have to say that on the face of it, this totally contradicts my view. Like, when I read this, I really don't have an answer for how this doesn't force us to a, you know, rapture at the time of Christ's coming kind of view. I thought that was, that, that was very telling. As I see it, and I'm not in a small minority on this, although you've been, you know, there are popular views where you've heard the, the contrary. Christ will come with the clouds, The angels, the trumpets, and the dead in Christ will rise. The living in Christ will be raptured up, and then judgment will come upon his enemies. Every eye will see him. It says, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. 
every eye, not just the eyes of his people, but even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. See, this fits nicely with all the other passages. But if every eye sees him, how is it a secret rapture? That, you have to ask yourself that. I'm a simple guy. You know that about me. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not complex in, in my thought process at all. And so I look at this and I go, whew, this is just easy. Like, this isn't hard. I don't have to have a chart. Nowhere in this early part of the message have I brought out a chart with complex, you know, pairings of verses and so forth. It's just, it's just easy, and I, I guess I like easy. You might as well say, um, if that's that simple, why, um, why would people hold any other view? Let me give you three quick reasons why people might hold the other view, to be fair. Um, one reason people might hold this view, and I think this is, um, this, it's unfair to say everyone that holds this view has this idea, but for some people, it is simply they don't want to go through the tribulation. How many don't want to go through the tribulation? Yeah, I'm with you. Isn't it, uh, isn't it odd, though, that, uh, that that's exactly what we're told we will do, is go through tribulation to enter the kingdom of God? And that's, again, what I said earlier, that's equating wrath and tribulation as the same thing. The wrath of God is simply God's hatred of sin. It is God's wrath or anger against sin and being brought to bear against his enemies. So Christians can go through very hard times. Christians can be burned at the stake and thrown to lions. and A lot of other bad things can happen to Christians. They can get cancer and they can die. All kinds of horrible things. But they will never experience the wrath of God against them. You don't have to have a pre-tribulational rapture to believe that we will escape the wrath of God. Some hold to it because of a certain view of God's plan with ethnic Israel. And in that view, for God to complete his purposes with ethnic Israel, God has to, and in this view, dispensationalism, the church is regarded as a parenthesis in God's plan. And so for God to uh, do what God is going to do with ethnic Israel, he has to rapture the church, take the church completely out of the earth, and then he starts finishing out what he was started with Israel. I, I don't think that's persuasive to me. It feels speculative, but that is a strong reason why some hold that view. A third view is the desire to keep a watchfulness uh, with regard to Christ's return. There are scriptures that speak very clearly of the fact that it's, it will be sudden and it will catch people unaware. And there are many verses of scripture that indicate there will be signs preceding his coming. Some feel that if you take a, a view that, that I'm presenting to you, that, that people will have too much information and they'll, they'll know when Christ is coming and that they'll grow lax and they won't have that sense of any moment rapture. I don't think that's forced upon us, actually, because as I see it, uh, the, the events that have to take place before Christ comes will not be absolutely 100% clear until the very inauguration, the very moment of his coming, the celestial cosmic signs. But before that, nobody's going to be that certain that the signs have come together. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Because there are definitive signs of his coming. Understand here I'm compressing a lot of information, and I apologize for that. I don't, I don't think you want me to do a two-year uh, revelation series, so we're putting a lot of stuff here. But um, 
One of the things that helped me a great deal, I picked up in seminary for D, from D.A. Carson. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's an eminent New Testament uh, scholar. Um, getting, getting pretty old now, but uh, I remember sitting in the class, and he went over Matthew 24. And it was eye-opening. Like, he presented Matthew 24 as kind of a grid uh, for understanding what, what was going to happen. And from that moment on, it was like I, I just took that grid and I looked at every uh, passage in the New Testament with regard to Christ's coming, and it always fit. It always made sense within that grid. So in Matthew 24, Jesus has talked about the destruction of the temple. And his, and his disciples are wondering what, what is going on. And they're like, well, what are the signs of, of, of this, these things and the signs of your coming? And so Jesus answers those questions in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. So the first largest section is actually leading up to the destruction of the temple. Jesus talks about birth pangs, and the destruction of the temple was like this enormous birth pang leading up to his coming. And then, of course, you have the, the signs of his immediate coming that are in the clouds. We know there will be wars and pestilence and all those things which will punctuate history as part of what he talks about there. There will be antichrists up until the time where we have the definitive man of lawlessness. We know that according to Matthew 24, that the gospel has to be preached in all the earth. But the only unmistakable signs that we will be aware of where we can go, yeah, that's not ever happened before. Because wars have happened and these other things. But the definitive signs of his coming will be celestial. They'll come all at once. The sun will be darkened. And we see this across multiple passages. The sun will be darkened. The moon will turn to blood. The stars will, in one... Excuse me, one chapter it's falling from the sky. In Revelation, it's described as being rolled back, the sky rolling back like a scroll. And there will be angels, and there will be clouds, and there will be trumpet sounds, and we will see Christ coming at that moment. Those immediate signs, those will be unmistakable. What I'm saying is, there are many signs which will be harder to fathom as we go along. For instance, take the Antichrist, for instance. How many my age have already heard several people identified in your lifetime as the potential Antichrist? Yeah? I can remember thinking, you know, John F. Kennedy maybe, because he'd been, you know, shot in the head, and, you know, the Antichrist kind of recovers from the head once so it's, maybe it's John F. Kennedy, and, uh, you know, uh, Saddam Hussein, that was a big, there were people writing books about how Saddam Hussein was going to be the Antichrist, and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. I remember even Obama, like people were saying, I think Obama's the Antichrist, all of these things. People thought Hitler was the Antichrist, and I'll tell you what, he is a real dead ringer for the Antichrist. And, uh, yeah, but, he, but yeah, he's very, very dead. I don't think he's coming back now. Some people still hold out hope that he's going to be the Antichrist. But at, at the end of the day, like at any given moment, we could think that that was happening. What about reaching the world with the gospel? Even in Paul's day, Christians could have had in any moment sort of rapture idea because Paul said that our message has gone out through the whole world. Now he didn't mean the globe and you know North America and all that, but the world as it was then had had, had the gospel preached to it. Have we preached the gospel to the whole earth now? Close? We don't know how God measures that. We know how Wycliffe measures it. Wycliffe says that they have to have the Bible translated in their language have, and have an established church. And then that's a reached people group. 
Is that, the, is that the same calculus that God uses? We don't know. So we don't know. So, but could those signs that we just talked about, the sun, the moon, and all that, could that happen today? As far as we know, yes. Yes, it could. Let me give you three quick advantages now to clarify how you approach the text. And this is what I did years ago when, when Carson went over Matthew 24 and a light light went on. It, Matthew 24 can become kind of your Rosetta Stone. Read Matthew 24 in the light that we talked about and then just go from passage to passage and you'll see 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter um, 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and you can go on from there. You can look at the whole book of Revelation. You think Revelation is a hard book. Well, yeah, when a person believes in a secret rapture, where do you put the rapture in the book of Revelation? Those of you that hold that view, where do you put it, typically? Usually it's when John is called up into heaven to see the, uh, the vision that, that he's going to be given. But the weird thing is that the very people that hold that view say that they believe in an absolute plain reading of the text, but that's anything but plain. John being brought up into heaven to see the vision has nothing to do with the rapture on the face of it, not that, at least not that I can see. But though the book is a daunting book, go through there sometime and just... Test this and see if you don't end up in the same place. I'm not saying that simple is better, but I'm kind of saying simple is better. <laughs> How many are, uh, had science in school and, and learned about Occam's razor? Anyone? A couple of you? Yeah, all of you. <laughs> you remember Occam's razor? It was a whole idea that, that the simplest, all things being equal, the simplest explanation is usually the best. So before the Copernican Revolution, when we realized that it was a solar system, back when people thought the earth was the center of the universe, they could chart the movements of the planets, and and just like we do now, they could chart them, but the calculations that they made had to have myriads upon myriads of adjustments for it to work. So they could kind of make the earth the center, but then they'd have to say, but in this case, there's this, there's this other offset that you have to make and so forth. But when they started to try to plug things in with a uh, heliocentric view, all, of, all at once, it, things just became simple. It's like, well, if that's true, then this is true and this is true, and we can predict this and so on and so forth. It became suddenly very simple. And, and that's my uh, two cents worth, is that if you, if you take this view that the rapture happens at his coming, a lot of stuff is going to fall into place quite easily. This view will also force you to prepare for tribulation, and that's a good thing. I'm not saying, no, I'm not saying it's good that we go through tribulation. That's not, that's not uh, the point of what I'm trying to say at all. But, uh, you know, Paul talks about the kinds of lives we ought to live in light of Christ's coming. He says in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, that the Lord will come as a thief in the night. But then he says... But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. We will be watching for him. We will be ready for him. He says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we know we won't be taken unaware if, if we are faithfully serving the Lord, seeking the Lord. We're not going to be taken unaware. We know we won't experience wrath, but we have absolutely been promised that we will experience tribulation. The very same word that's used of that seven-year period, the tribulation period, is the same word that Paul went to great efforts to teach the Christians. It was like Christianity 101. 
Do you remember when we went through the book of Acts? Not that long ago. Paul had been to the churches, the first churches that they planted together, he and Barnabas. And when they were finished with the first missionary journey, or halfway through, depending on how you look at it, they went back through the exact same route, hitting the same churches. And the message that it says Paul told them was that it's through many tribulations that we enter into the kingdom of God. That was Christianity 101. You know, I have read, I think it was... um, Corey Tinboom actually that had this in one of her books but she talked about the fact that the uh, Chinese Christians so the the missionaries that went to China from about 1900 through 1950 when when the communists you know ran off all the missionaries that they were teaching them a dispensational pre-tribulational rapture view and that the Chinese church was utterly unprepared at first when the communists took over because they just started killing people right and left they started martyring Christians by the, the hundreds of thousands. And these people thought, what is going on? I thought before this would happen that we were going to be taken up into heaven. So they were ill-prepared for it. We ought to be prepared for tribulation. You can, you can plan for pre, but you better prepare for post, is the old saying. And I, I mean, it's just, even if you don't hold my view, it, it's a good thing as a Christian that we are prepared that we may suffer just as Christians have. Then finally, this view will focus your hope upon his coming. If you you believe in a classic dispensational secret pre-trib rapture, I'm not saying that, I'm I'm not saying what I'm saying here to upset you. But for me, I feel like the simpler view just primes the pump more and has my heart more ready because of the simplicity. Like I feel, I feel like if my thought of Christ's coming involves me getting out multiple charts to try to ferret out what, you know, what's happening, um, that that somehow dulls it. But the, the simplicity of knowing that, that there will be these, these cosmic signs, I'll hear a trumpet and we'll see Christ coming, and that that's sort of the next thing I'm looking for. That, to me, has a way of just disentangling me. It's more childlike. I'm, I guess I'm a child, as some of you know. So I'm attracted to that. I'm thinking, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Not come quickly, Lord Jesus. I don't know what we're doing for the next seven years. Then come back again, Lord Jesus. I'm thinking, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Just, just the one thing, just the one time, and that should be good enough. If you'd like to read more, I would, uh, I would highly recommend this book. I'll just hold it up real quick for you here. Um, Come Lord Jesus by John Piper. It's certainly not the only book out there that would explain some of these things I'm talking about, but but he does a nice job uh, of it. If you're a believer today, um, look forward to his coming. No matter what view you take, I would would just hold out to this notion that, that he is coming, and when he comes, he will set everything's right. He will rapture the church. He will pour out wrath on his enemies in in one basic event but we should be ready for that if you're not a believer understand this those who do not know christ um they won't see the day coming i mean they'll see him but they won't see the day coming there will be no anticipation of it jesus said it's gonna be like in the days of noah where the rain just started coming down now noah was ready he'd been wait waiting decades to see those raindrops fall. And when it came, he was on board the ark, and God shut the door and took care of the whole thing. But the people around him, after, even though they were watching this silly boat getting built, um, they weren't looking for it. If, if you are not with Christ, you will be caught unaware. It will be like a thief in the night. 
And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, if, if you're at that place, it will be too late in that day. If you wait thinking, you know what, I'll just hang on to my unbelief until I hear the trumpet sound. Not a good plan. Not a good plan. You will be caught unaware. It will be too late. You will not at that point be able to turn and repent and believe and be saved. How will you see him when he comes? How will you see him when he comes? Will you see him coming as your savior and rescuer? Or will you see him coming as a judge? Believe the gospel. Turn to Christ. Be saved. Let his coming be a joy and not a dread. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, these are are, are, um, complicated, thorny questions that the church has wrestled with for centuries. I thank you that that Christians are agreed that you're coming again, and that that is true no matter how we we dice and slice and and look at these passages. Um, But Lord, I pray that we would be ready, ready for your coming, that we would be watchful for those signs, and we thank you, Lord, that you will come, and you will um, pierce the heavens and, and we will hear the, the trumpet and see you coming. Every eye will behold you and, and we will be changed or risen from the grave if, if in that time we have died, but we will be caught up to meet you and we will be together forever with you and we praise you for, for that great hope that we have. And Lord, we pray that even um, a message like today, which was, which was kind of a teaching message, that that would fall on receptive hearts. And Lord, that those that are apart from you would turn to you and find salvation and start looking forward with gratitude and hope toward that day. We ask it in your name. Amen.